Well, thank you, Pastor. Wow, what a delight to be with you folk here in Westchester. Long history. Wow. Uh, Pastor Harold Graves was with us. Pastor Bob Mahaffey. Pastor Now was with us. And what a joy. We have celebrated so many teams from Westchester across the years. Changed our world forever. Loved on our people. And uh, we will never, ever be the same. I think you built over 20 churches just in the Amazon. So what a delight for me to be here in Westchester. I, I failed to notice this in the first section, but I see a celebration there in your folder down below. That was a celebration for my wife. A thousand people came to the mission station in New Horizons, and we buried her ashes there at her favorite spot. We lived our first 15 years downriver on the backside of a large village. You could only reach our home by water. There were no roads, and so you could only travel to our place by boat. And my wife loved that place. That's where we began the work. There were no churches in the area, and we started our work there just struggling, young new missionaries trying to find our way. And I'm delighted to see these young people here. Uh, young people, I was raised in a little town in Ohio called Jamestown, right where 35 and 72 cross. I knew nothing about the church, got saved in Springfield, went out to Pasadena Nazarene College and got a call for missions there. And young people, God has something special for you, believe me. Trust Him and your journey will be glorious. I wouldn't trade nothing for the journey now. And uh, over a thousand people came for that service. We lived down river. My wife loved that place. From her kitchen window, she could look out on the great Montagnon River, which is one of the two main rivers coming out of the Andes Mountains that then meets above the city, the jungle city of Iquitos, Peru. And that's where the Amazon River begins. She loved that scene evergreen, beautiful trees, rolling hills in the distance. We lived on the corner of two rivers, the Kusu and the Marañón. We bathed every day in the Kusu. My kids learned to water ski on the Kusu, alligator hunting at night. They fished for piranha during the daytime. And uh, if you're ever concerned about your kids, take them to the Amazon, you'll get over it. And what a life. My wife fell in love with that view from her kitchen window. There no glass in the windows, just screen. And she loved that spot. And then 15 years later, we realized that we were very much isolated. We needed a more centric location. So we then were able to get from the government a land parcel 25 miles up the river where the new dirt road was coming through. And some of you have been to New Horizons. In fact, you helped build that place. And what a celebration. So I said to my wife, honey, I want you to see this new property. She did not want to move. She loved that spot. People would walk by her kitchen window. The ladies would stack rocks up and watch her cook there in the kitchen. And they would, one would stand there and she'd tell the other ladies, she's opening up a can. And she's got, she's got a, there's fire coming out of that machine. You see, they cook on three logs in the middle of their 
dirt-floored, thatched-roof hut. They had never seen a stove before. It was a kerosene stove. You've probably never seen one of those. And she would prepare food, and one day she opened up a can, and the lady watched as she pulled out those long, round objects, and they jumped down from the rock. She told the ladies, they're eating fingers, and they ran to the village as quick as they could. And the word passed like wildfire that the missionaries eat fingers. And our helper came and he said, Doctor, what is, the, the word is all around that you folk eat fingers. And we thought, what? And so my wife went up to where we stored our food and we had bought from Denmark cans of long, thin wieners. And they had never seen a can of wieners, of course. And so they had the story now made up that we had a tribe of people in the States we cut off their fingers, we ate them, they regrew new ones, and uh, that's the world into which we were left. And I said, honey, I want you to see this new property. She did not want to go. I said, well, let's go out tomorrow. You've got to see it. It was one of those drizzly, cool, overcast days in the Amazon. We had to travel in our open dugout canoe boat upriver about six hours. She was cool in the boat, not comfortable sitting on a bench with no back to it. We got up to the old dirt road, and I said, honey, it's down this road, and we went, and it was overgrown, you know, and there were moss and mud everywhere, and I said, look, this is where we're going to build the clinic. It was a swamp. We had to have it drain later on. She was not impressed. I said, over here, we'll build the big shop area. And as we walked through this property, it was a beautiful trees all around, balsa trees, green, lush vegetation. But it was that cool, drizzly. She was kind of wet and cold, and she was not impressed. And I said, hey, look at this stream. We can bathe here every day. And all she could think of is cold water. Are you kidding me? And we kept walking, and up the hill we made our way. And there I said, on the left side, we can build the Bible Institute where we were training pastors. And uh, there were rolling different levels, and we would put the dormitories and the classrooms and so forth. And I said, look over here, we can build our house on this beautiful flat spot. And so she walked over there. And she looked out, and she could see the rolling hills in the distance, the beautiful green of the rainforest, the fast-moving Marignon River down below her, breathtaking scene. She stood there, and she said, this is my kitchen. Build the house around me. <laughs> and we did. And uh, that picture is of her celebration of life at New Horizons. People came from everywhere to celebrate her wonderful life there in the Amazon. Well, I, I'm so glad to be here this morning because so many of you, and some have gone on to be with the Lord, have been with us, slept with our people in native huts, slept under mosquito net to keep the vampire bats off of you. <laughs> some are here this morning. Thank you for investing in that part of the world. It was a challenge. <laughs> oh my, 
When we first went there, we went directly from Mexico. We were sent to Mexico to learn Spanish. After one, almost a year in Mexico, we then were sent right straight to Peru into the jungle and another language on top of it. You talk about stressed out. Language very, very difficult to understand. Four nasal vowels, four oral vowels. You can speak one word, and it may have a tone for nose, the nasal quality and also the oral quality. The word for midnight, we call it a glutteral stop. I eat, I eat, midnight. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> and the challenge of learning another language. Oh, wow. But then the customs and the culture. Young, new missionaries, green, wet behind the ears, struggling, three small children. My wife, she made the kids wear these little boots. She was terrified that they would get bitten by a snake. Don't go past the dead log out there. That lasted about two weeks, and then they were in the river and fishing for prawn and who knows what else. <laughs> and uh, life went on. What, a, what an incredible journey. God has a plan for us that is so, so special. I cannot tell you this morning how incredible this journey has been. From a little town called Jamestown to the jungles of northern Peru. <laughs> and, uh, wow, we opened up a clinic they had never seen a clinic in their life. Most of them had never seen a doctor. When they heard that I had something you could pull teeth out and it didn't hurt, they came out of the woodwork. Because many of them would pry a tooth loose with a broken piece of machete. And that's quite painful. So they would come for miles around to have their teeth pulled. And then when they heard we had treatment for leishmaniasis, that is the dreaded tropical disease of the Amazon at that time. It was a terrible disease caused from the bite of a nocturnal sandfly that lives in the sand beaches in certain areas where it's prevalent. And when the men are out with just their hunting trunks on, no shoes, no shirt, no pants, they're fishing or maybe hunting at night, they may be bitten on some exposed part of their body. It begins as a little pimple-like well. Then it opens up and becomes a large, ulcerating sore. And it will spread. It does not heal. But after several months, it will finally heal at the skin level, but the parasite remains within the circulatory system and finally has an affinity for the septum of the nose where it begins to eat all the soft cartilage, destroying the entire nose, the upper lip, the eye socket, the cheek, and the mucosal lining of the throat. Terrible disease. When they heard that we had the treatment for this disease, they came from everywhere. We had to build a hut to house them because some had to receive upwards of 100 injections just to arrest the disease. And they would have to have three times a week their injection, very painful medicine, very toxic. And so they would stay at our mission station. And their families would come to cook for them. 
One day my helper came and he said, he said, Doctor, we need to build a lean-to roof for the family members to cook food for their patients. I said, well, we have no money to buy roofing. Work and witness had not been invented yet. And uh, we didn't have the funds. And he said, no problem. I will take two men tomorrow and we will go upriver in our boat and we will harvest the large 10-foot-long yerina leaves, and we will make a leaf roof. Great idea. I was young, you know, and I said, I want to go with you tomorrow. Oh, he said, you can't. I said, what? He says, it's too far. We're going into the high country. It will be a long trek. We have to carry these large bundles back to the boat. It will be an all-day project. And I thought, well, I will show you. I was strong, wasn't quite 30 yet, and I went to go. I thought to myself, I'm going. I said, I want to go. He said, all right, we're leaving at 7. So 7 the next morning, I put on boots all the way to my knees. No snake will get me. I had shirt buttoned down clear to my hand. No insects will bite me today. So I left the house at seven, walked down to the port, and there were those three guys, nothing on but hunting trunks. Of course, they didn't have shoes. And all they had was hunting trunks and a machete. And I thought, you guys are going to get eaten alive. So we got into the boat. We made our way up river, And he came to a shoreline. And it was pure jungle thick. You could not even see where you could even get into the jungle. And they jumped ashore with machetes swinging, cutting vines, and opening up a trail. And he said, this is a little used hunting trail. It, it was. And I jumped out of the boat, you know, and I started following them up this trail. And we kept winding our way higher and higher. They were cutting vines about this high to me. And I kept following them, and they were going fleet of foot, and I was trying to stay with them. I was perspiring profusely. My feet were getting tired. I was hot. We kept climbing and climbing up these hills, grinding our way through the jungle, careful where to step and to watch. And I was looking everywhere. And finally, they stopped. I was out of breath. And they found this clump of leaves, about 12 leaves or 10 feet long, and they cut 10 of those off, and they leave two for regrowth. And they found two clumps of those, and those 10 leaves, they roll into a bundle. They tie each end with a stout vine, and it weighs about 15 pounds, one of those bundles. And they had two of those, and I said, wow, we got this job done. Oh, they said, this is nothing. But I looked around, there's no more leaves. I said, well, but there's no more leaves. Oh, he said, we're going to the high country. I was about as high as I was going. <laughs> I was tired. My feet were sore from those boots. So I was the only one that had a watch on. So I formulated a plan. I'm going to teach them some organizational skills, a little bit about administration. They're going to learn a big lesson today. So I said to them, Look, you've, you guys go on up and cut the leaves, make the bundles, bring them to this central receiving area. I will take these two bundles to the boat. I will come back and pick up the ones you deliver here, 
and take them to the boat. And I thought to myself, we'll get this job done in half the time, and you guys are going to learn a lot about North American organization. He said, can you find the boat? Of course I can find the boats. Down the trail we just came up, they disappeared. I congratulated myself on a well-laid plan. I will take my good old time going to the boat. There'll be no more running. I will walk back up here, take these bundles at my leisure time, and we'll get this job done quickly. So I picked up one bundle here, one on my shoulder, and I begin to make my way down this thin cut trail towards the river. We were a long way away. Now, in the rainforest, the canopy overhead is so thick that the sun does not penetrate the ground. And so the ground is always has a thin layer of moss and light mud. And I spent more time on one part of my anatomy than I cared to share with you this morning. <laughs> Inevitably, I would fall down, the leaves in every direction. And then all of a sudden, it felt like someone had lit a thousand matchsticks and put them on the back of my neck. I was in excruciating, burning pain. And I reached back and pulled fire ants. They forgot to tell me that you always shake the leaves off before you put them on your shoulder. I was in excruciating pain sitting there in the mud. I got back up after the pain had subsided somewhat. I put the leaves under one arm, one on my shoulder, and I began to make my way back down. Now, where's the trail? Somebody had moved the trail. The trail was gone. I couldn't find the trail. And I looked around in every direction. I knew the next step I'd take, something would bite me. My first experience in the jungle by myself, I was lost. I didn't know where I was. I couldn't get to the boat. I had no idea where they were. And all I wanted to do was hear another human voice. So I, I stood there frozen. I, I called out, Moses. That was the name of my helper. Nothing. Only the sounds of the rainforest around me. I was terrified. I was lost in the jungle. I didn't know where the river was. I couldn't find the trail. My neck was still burning. I was tired, covered with mud. And, oh, I know how. Yeah, they always hold their hands, and they cup them, and they throw their voice into a high falsetto. I'll, I'll try that. Moises, oh, and my voice carried out across the jungle. I'd heard them do that. And I heard often, Doctor, oh. I made a new trail that day without a machete. <laughs> Both feet never hit the ground at the same time. I just wanted to find another person. <laughs> And I made my way up that hillside, and I stopped in a little clearing, gathering myself, tired, worn out, wondering why in the world we had done this. I don't know if those leaves ever got taken. They're probably rotted there in the jungle by now. And I stopped, and I called again, Moises, oh, doctor, oh. Oh, I could hear the voice closer. So I followed that sound I looked around, and I could see it around the bend of the trail, and there they were, nonchalantly cutting down leaves, rolling them up, 
tithing them off. No hurry. I straightened myself up, brushed my hair, got the dirt and the leaves out, kind of got myself back together. I strode in the hut, and I let them have it. I said, this is a crummy way to work. We came out here together. We need to stay together and finish this job together. <laughs> and uh, I've learned a lot in the jungle. <laughs> I learned that I really had a lot to learn. <laughs> and so it was. As we began our life there among those people, there were no churches except the one on our little station, dirt floored, banisters were about that high, backless benches, men sat on one side, the women with the kids on the other side, some sitting underneath the banana plants out on the hillside. Church was packed, it was so exciting. I would give an altar call on Sunday morning and the men would look at me with their arms folded. No one would move. And then I realized in their culture, you do not ask for forgiveness. You don't, do not forgive your enemy, you kill them. Because revenge practices were the name of the game. How in the world do you reach a people who don't use the word forgive? And so Sunday after Sunday, they'd fold their arms and look at me like, what? And I would plead with them to come to the altar to pray, and no one would move. And it was a challenging time. And one day, they brought me this little boy. He was about seven or eight years of age, protruding abdomen. Right away, I diagnosed that he had roundworm infestation. Some of the people would have up to 120, 30 roundworms that long. And we'd have to give them medication, flush them out, and it's, it's quite a process. So I gave the father the medicine. I said, now, give this medicine to your son. Bring him back tomorrow. I will have to give him a high enema, and then we will continue the treatment, and we'll do this until we're assured that he will not have intestinal obstruction. So they got into their canoe, and I watched as they did not return to their village up the Marignon River, but they were headed up the Kusu River, the smaller river in the opposite direction. I turned to my helper and I said, Moses, they don't live up the Kusu. Where are they going? He hesitated for a moment. He said, well, they're going to visit the witch doctor tonight, but, but they've just been here. He said, well, most people come here and then go to the witch doctor to cover their bases. Well, that was really reassuring. So I blurted out, you know, young missionary, I want to go see the witch doctor tonight too. Not that I was sick, I wanted to see how he worked. He said, well, I can take you, but we have to go after dark. Because the witch doctor during the daytime takes hallucinating drugs called ayahuasca, made from the extract of a certain vine. And he takes that drug and he has hallucinations. And in those hallucinations will be his ability to cure the people at night. And so I said, okay, let's go tonight. So the day was beautiful. I finished in a clinic and we did our work around the station. The kids and I bathed in the river that afternoon, had a blast. My wife had a supper for us. Darkness settled in. I cranked up the old 
We had an old Dutes little diesel generator to give light in the house. And we were comfortable there in our little home. And I saw a flashlight approaching the house. Oh, no, he remembered. No. It was pitch black outside. He came to the house. Now, they don't knock on your door because they don't have doors. And, of course, they don't ring doorbells. So they always look at you sitting in your living room. They look right at you and say, Yes, friend, are you there? And they know you are. They're looking at you, but that's the way they do it. <laughs> and you're supposed to reply back, uh-uh, Yes, I'm here. And he knows you are. And you have to ask him, Yes, friend, have you just come? And he replies, Uh-uh, Yes, I've just come. And you know he has, but that's the way they do it. And uh, he said, I'm ready. I got the boat ready. Oh, man. I said, you know, we really, we haven't announced our visit. They may resent us coming in at night like this. Let's not go. He said, no, I've got the boat already. Let's go. Oh, man. So I told my wife, I'd be back, I hope. <laughs> Grabbed my flashlight, went outside. I could hear the sounds of night. Now, the Amazon rainforest, the night sounds are different than the day. The predator animals are looking for their victims in the trees overhead. And you can hear the sounds at night. And it's a little unnerving until you're used to it. And so we made our way down to our port. We both got into this little boat, and we began paddling up the Kusu River. And I looked back, and I could see the lights of our home. I could hear the, the little diesel generator pounding away. And we rounded a bend in the river, and now we were absorbed in this inky blackness. I could see nothing except the bare outline of the trees on the other shore. I could hear the sounds of the jungle all around me. And I said, Moses, let's go home. You know, they may not like us just barging in tonight. He said, no, we're, we're not too far away. Oh, man, we kept plunging our paddles into the river, following the closest shoreline, round the next bend. And he said, look. He said, look at that nest of canoes. There's a whole crowd there tonight at the witch doctor's house. Oh, my heart began to race a little bit. What am I going to expect tonight? He may not like us just barging in like this. And we hit the mud bank, and he jumped out and tied our boat to a tree. And he said, let's go. And I really wasn't too happy about this. I said, no, let, let's go home. Well, let's do it another night. He said, no, we're almost there. So he follows this little thin trail, and I wasn't about to stay there by myself, so I followed him along. And it was a little narrow trail, muddy, vines in every direction, plants, the sounds of the jungle. And as we made our way further in the jungle, I could hear off in the distance, hey, the witch doctor chanting, the hair stood up on my hand, the back of my neck. My heart was racing. Why in the world did I decide to go visit the witch doctor tonight? I just wanted to go home. And I said, Moses, let's go back. He said, no, we're almost there. And he took off, and I wasn't about to stay there by myself. So I followed him around the next bend, and we could hear the sound deeper now. The witch doctor was chanting. I could see now in the distance this little bamboo thatched roof hut. 
There between the bamboo poles formed the wall was a little yellowish light from a fire, three-logged fire in the middle of the hut. He stopped short of the hut about 10 yards, and he called out to the witch doctor, Chimpa, Yeshu, Puhamak, are you there? And the witch doctor, I could hear inside the hut, Yeshu, Puhahe, Yepo, I'm here, who's there? Vihe, Moises, and the doctor. Oh, why do you have to mention my name anyway? And he said, Come in, sit down. So we made our way through this narrow doorway of upright post. They motioned for us to sit on a little bamboo bed there. I looked around. It was semi-dark. I could see a crowd of people in the background. They were anticipating the witch doctor's success with the little boy. There he was lying on a bamboo mat on the dirt floor. He was almost transfixed in a semi-hypnotic state. The little boy that I had treated that morning, there off to the side was the grandfather. He was preparing tobacco leaves in the fire. And I'm wondering, man, what's going on? This is strange. And there was another witch doctor sitting beside the one who was making sucking sounds over the abdomen of the sick boy. And the other witch doctor was chanting, you are more powerful, you can cure this boy, you will heal him tonight. And all of a sudden, the witch doctor rose up, spit out to one side with a great shout, the disease that had caused the boy's infirmity. And rapidly, the grandfather came from the fire with those tobacco leaves, and he inhaled that smoke and then blew it out so he would not be contaminated by that disease. She never taught me that. I sit there that night now understanding the culture, the customs. Little boys would sit around the fire of their grandfather at night, and he would tell them all the legendary myths of the jungle. They would tell them the war songs, the revenge-killing war songs. They would teach them that the greatest vision you can receive is that of becoming a warrior to fight with the palmwood spear. And the second best vision that you can receive after taking ayahuasca, the hallucinating drink, is to become a powerful hunter to hunt animals with the blowgun. And the third vision is that of being a powerful speaker and the men pride themselves on their authoritative speaking. And the grandfather would tell these little boys all the mythology of their people. And I left that hut that night, devastated. <laughs> the little boy had been to the clinic, and now this. And as we made our way back down the trail, my heart was overburdened. I was so saddened. Young new missionaries, God had sent us to these people. There were no churches. But earlier missionary way back yonder had planted seed but never saw the harvest. They left the jungle, never saw the harvest, but they planted the seed. And that seed was germinating. And as we got back into the boat and made our way back down that torturous river, as we came around the corner, I could hear the thumping of our little diesel motor in the distance. And then around the next bend, I saw the, the little dim lights of our home. 
and I just wanted to crawl in that house. I just wanted to go inside. I wanted to erase everything that I had experienced that night. I couldn't handle it. I wanted to just forget the whole episode of that evening. And as our boat was moving into the mud bank, I remember as a young missionary, I had just started working in the jungle, and I visited a very familiar site on the edge of the jungle where a famous Nazarene missionary at the age of 37 died during childbirth. They had started the work but never saw the harvest. And before she died, she says, it looks as though we have come to sow so that those who come later might harvest. And as our little boat nudged into the mud bank that night, I just wanted to get into my home and erase the memories of those last few hours. But then I looked and I saw that graveside and I remembered that lady who gave her life for those people and never saw the harvest. And I said, Lord, I want you to know we're ready to give what it takes if you'll just bring these people to yourself. Help us. We don't know how to reach them. We don't understand their customs. We don't, can't identify with their culture yet. The language is so complicated. We feel overwhelmed, Lord, help us. And I said, Lord, whatever it takes, we're willing to give it if you'll just bring these people to yourself. And you know what? He did. He'd been a mighty work. It wasn't long till they began coming to our altars. And I'll never forget, Sunday after Sunday, those men with that stoic expression would not move. And then one Sunday morning, a man slipped from about the third bench back. He hurriedly made his way to our altar. It was the first man to kneel at our altar. His hair was long and black over broad shoulders. And the people couldn't believe what they were seeing. He knelt and his shoulders heaved and sobs racked his body. And his tears splashed from the altar onto the floor. And I knelt with him and I prayed with him and I said, Thank you, Lord. For it was a man who was known as the greatest warrior in the entire tribe. He had killed more men in his lifetime than any man known. His name was Household up and down the river and across the trails. No one wanted to mess with Lucho Asangai. He had the battle scars to prove it. He had killed more men in his lifetime than any warrior known. And you could have heard a pin drop in that church that day. Lucho, of all men, kneeling at the altar, I prayed and cried with him. He helped me out for a couple years teaching the men out under the trees. As I mentioned, work and witness hadn't started yet. And so my wife, she took the church with the women and made us go out under the trees. And then he decided his village must have a church. He started preaching. He built a little tiny church. Two men helped him. 
They built one of the first churches of the Nazarene in the jungle. And he began to preach. But then something happened. Those men who followed him on the warpath, those men who went with him on revenge killing raids, those men who drank the native liquor called Masato and would get drunk to the beating of the drums in the wee hours of the night, and hey, hey, hey. He no longer did that. And now something happened. Those people turned on him. He would preach every Sunday in that little church. He had no education. He would give a testimony. He would talk a little bit. A few women came and a few children, but no men. And now they tormented him. As he walked the trails of the village, some would shout out, there goes God, and they mocked him, and they made fun of him, and they ridiculed him. They tested him at every turn of the trail to fight, and he wouldn't. They invited him to the drink in drunken festivals, and he wouldn't go. And Lucho stood the test. We prayed desperate for him, but he knew that if he turned back, heads would roll. But Lucho held steady. And then one dark night, I'll never forget that night. The people were all asleep in their native huts. It was one of those foreboding nights, a cool, damp evening, pitch black. And they were awakened to these terrifying sounds. And the men jumped from their beds, grabbed their spears, made their way out with their backs to the river, facing the forest because they knew that a revenge killing raid was about to take place because they, three months earlier, had gone to the village of Kanka. Now, Kanka is up on the Sanepa River, give you an idea where it is. And they had killed people in Kanka. And now they knew their turn had come. So the men, with their weapons, backs to the river, facing the force, waiting for those warriors to spring out of the darkness, and the fighting would begin. And the women raced from their beds and lit their little wick lamps at dying embers of a three-log fire in the middle of the hut. And they followed their husbands outside, terrified, standing by their husbands in stark fear. The children arose from the beds crying, running and grabbing their mom's legs and calling out, what is it? The dogs were barking, running up and down along the bank. And the men said, hush, listen. And they waited in readiness, for they knew that any minute the warriors would come out of that darkness and fighting would begin. And then they heard the sound, the sound of three voices. But those sounds came not from the forest. They came from the river. And they all turned and faced the river, and they heard three men pleading for help. They said, we are in a canoe. We've lost our paddles. We can't get to shore. Send the longboat. Save us before we hit the rapids of the whirlpools 15 minutes downriver. You see, those three men had crossed the river from that village that day, and they participated in a beer feed, the Masato drink made from boiled yuca, which the ladies chew, masticate, and spit into a pot and let it ferment, and it's a mess. 
and they got drunk that night. And in that drunken stupor, they decided to return back to the main village in that dugout canoe. As they were crossing the torrent-filled Marignon River, a wave hit their canoe sideways, and they thought they were going to capsize, and in fear in that drunken state, they dropped their paddles and clung to the weaving, bobbing canoe, and now they were hopelessly adrift and could not get to shore. And the women pleaded with the men, go help them. They will be lost in the whirlpools and down at Hunky Chunk, it's called. And the men said, we can't. They're on their own. We have no light sufficient. We have no motorized craft. There's no way we could help them. We too would be lost in the whirlpools and the rapids. And no one moved. And crying broke out along the bank. And then they saw a lone figure approaching. And through that group of men, they saw a man broad of shoulder, hair hanging down over those shoulders, just his hunting trunks on, barefooted, of course. He'd never seen a pair of shoes. He had a paddle over one shoulder. Without saying a word, he walked through that group of men, dropped down over the hillside, down to the lower level where his canoe was tied. There was a young man standing not too far away. He said to the young man, untie my canoe, grab a paddle, shove me out. And the young man obeyed that authoritative voice and shoved the canoe out, and now the two were in the Marignon River. Inky blackness, they could barely see the outline of the trees on the distant shore. It was an ominous night, cool, damp. And the man in the back pulled broad strokes on his paddle, moving that craft swiftly across the river, searching from that lost runaway canoe, but no sign. The boy in the front was paddling desperately, terrified. He also knew what awaited them downriver at the rapids and the whirlpools, the entrance of this great canyon area. And he pleaded with the older man. He said, turn aside, strike the far shore, save us, we too will drown. And the older man continued broad stroking that paddle, crisscrossing, looking for that runaway. And as they came around the next curve in the river, they could hear the terrifying sounds of the water crashing across those huge boulders that lined both sides of the river. And they knew the river would close down to that funnel shape and go over the rapids about a three-foot drop into those two huge menacing whirlpools. And the young man pleaded with the older man, please save us, we will be lost he put his paddle down beside him and clung to that weaving, bobbing canoe. And the older man continued his trek. And the young man knew life was over. He could feel the coolness of the water now splashing from that canoe onto his near-naked body. He hung to that canoe in desperation as it picked up speed and was moving into that funnel that would carry them over the rapids and into the whirlpool. And then he saw a shadow up to the right and he said, I think that's the canoe. And the older man pulled his paddle broad strokes and it was the runaway, but the three men were lying on the bottom and they were crying. 
they knew their life was over. The two canoes came together. The three men staggered into that canoe. The young man picked up his paddle, and they strained at those paddles with every muscle they had until they finally broke the clutches of that current, and they hit the backwater and struck the far shore, and three drunk men staggered out. They couldn't believe they'd been spared. And now the two men begin pulling that canoe back upriver, pulling it all the way back up river, curve after curve. And as they came to where they could see the little yellowish lights, the ladies were still holding aloft. They could hear them crying, Ho-cha! Five men have drowned in the river tonight. And as they got opposite the village, back into the canoe, they swang across that river and three drunk men staggered into the arms of their loved ones. The people couldn't believe it. Crying turned to laughter and joy filled the air. And then every man looked to the ground as Lucho walked the length of that canoe. They couldn't look at him in the eye for he was the only one willing to risk his life for three drunk men. Not a word was exchanged. He went to his hut, but it changed the course of history forever. For it was not a message they heard, it was one they saw. The next Sunday, his altars were lined with men. He was invited to village after village. I don't know how many churches he has planted. He died just a few short years back, but he was known not for the number of men he killed, but for the hundreds he had brought to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the work began, and God had a plan, and God changed the world forever. And as we moved up river, then work and witness people came. Westchester sent team after team, traveled with us on those rivers, worked in the rain and the mud. Could I ever forget that day when we'd finished a job? Grown men, bearded, clothes so dirty that you wouldn't even want to touch them. They went down the river to bathe that afternoon before we were turning back to the mission station for our two-day trip upriver. And I went down to bathe, and I heard them out there singing the theme song of Gilligan's Island. I thought, well, the jungle has really gotten to them. And then it was theme songs from other programs at that time. Grown men, bearded, dirty, but enjoying the benefits of serving God. I'll never forget that as long as I live. Thank you for sharing in mission. Thank you for making it happen. Thank you for giving, for praying, for going. You've changed our world forever. I was just there in July and August. We did a bike trip, 310 miles, from the seminary on the coast of Peru to the seminary in the jungle across the Andes Mountains. And when I got there exhausted, I retired my bike. I don't want to see it again. 
and hundreds and hundreds of Indians gathered to greet us. Can you ever get over that? Yes. Esther Carson, you were right. You did plant the seed, you and your husband, Roger Winans. And I'm sure they're rejoicing today because they're right at 250 churches just in the jungle. To God be the glory. Great things he has done, great things he is doing. The Amazon district has 120 churches, just that one district, there, there are three others. Self-supporting. They receive no funding from the outside world. They're starting church after church on their own. They take offerings and buy roofing to build a new church in a new location because they saw you do it. They copied you. They watched you love on their kids. They watched you sleep on their bamboo beds. They watched you eat at their table their meager food. They watched you try to choke down those raw grub worms. Some of you became member of my grub club. They watched you love on their kids. They watched you trade hammers and build their buildings. And they will never be the same because of people like you. God bless you.